There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is fairly well acknowledged that when it comes to combat operations, Australian forces are up there with the best the world has to offer. At Pozieres, Kokoda, Kapyong Valley and Long Tan, just to name a few, Australian soldiers have emerged victorious against superior forces through a combination of fighting skills, determination and toughness under the worst conditions. But one area often overlooked when engaging the effectiveness of Australian forces is their contribution away from the combat area and in the interests of ensuring and enforcing peace in some of the world's most troubled parts. This episode is dedicated to the men and women who have operated in the world's hotspots since 1947 and applied their skills and courage in the pursuit of peace, often without the majority of their countrymen even knowing they were there. Here's to the quiet heroes, the peacekeepers. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. I mentioned in the introductory episode that sometimes I'll probably present episodes which some people may find confronting. This is one such episode. I'll be making mention of a massacre which occurred during the Rwandan deployment. It was an event which some Australian peacekeepers were witness. So if that is likely to cause concern for you in any way, then by all means skip over that part and I'll give you a notice when we get there. Now on with the episode. Like me, you might be surprised to learn that Australians were among the first troops ever to be deployed in a UN peacekeeping role. Four Australians, two from the Army and one each from the Navy and Air Force, were deployed to the Dutch East Indies, now known as Indonesia, as military observers in 1947. This was in response to the Indonesian National Revolution. A bit of background. So when the Japanese invaded and occupied the Dutch East Indies in World War II, the Dutch authorities were powerless to protect their colony. This strengthened anti-Dutch feeling, and when the Japanese were eventually defeated, the people of the Dutch East Indies proclaimed their independence from the Netherlands. The Dutch weren't so keen on the idea, and this led to four years of sometimes bloody conflict. The UN supported Indonesian independence, and the deployment of the Australians, among other UN troops, as observers was intended to ensure that neither side violated the ceasefire agreements. It was felt that soldiers could use their military knowledge to assess the movements of either side and determine if they were likely to be a threat. Any violations were quickly noted, and the UN and world media advised. In all, a total of 45 Australians served in Indonesia over the four years from 1947, and the transition to Indonesian independence was eventually achieved. Australian troops were part of a UN force in Korea in 1950. Tensions were rising between the Communist North, backed by the USSR and China, and the Democratic South, backed by the US, Australia and other UN nations. A close eye was being kept on both sides of the 38th parallel, the dividing line between North and South. In 1950, North Korea invaded the South, but it wasn't immediately obvious which side had initiated the conflict. At the time, two Australians were on the ground. Major F.S.B. Peach and Squadron Leader R.J. Rankin. They were Australia's smallest ever peacekeeping contingent, but they probably had a greater responsibility than any other. They were the only UN observers in place when North Korea made us move. Their report, taken from personal observations, 
was pivotal in proving that it was indeed the North which had kicked things off. Their testimony provided the UN with the justification it needed to intervene on behalf of the South. Obviously other Australians soon followed and fought under the umbrella of the UN, but theirs was a combat role, not peacekeeping, so we will cover their exploits in later episodes. Many peacekeeping operations are of a limited time frame, but some just keep on keeping on. Australian observers were involved in Kashmir from 1950 to 1985, monitoring the ceasefire between India and Pakistan, an area which is still, in 2020, a hotspot between two nuclear-armed nations. The UN still has 45 people in the region, although I've been unable to find out if there are any Australians. Australian peacekeepers first deployed to the Middle East in 1956 as observers of the various trouble spots in the region. As of 2020, we still have 12 Australians deployed with the UN forces, according to the UN website. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, Australia's contribution to peacekeeping operations increased. It was a busy time in world politics, with a tenuous peace between Israel and Egypt after 30 years of conflict. The fight for independence in Zimbabwe and Namibia reached their climax during this period. Australians were on hand to monitor and help guide the peace negotiations in each area. By far the busiest time for Australian peacekeepers was the 1990s. Throughout that decade, Australians donned the blue cap of the UN in Iraq, Cambodia, Somalia, Rwanda, the Middle East, Cyprus, Bougainville and rounded out the decade in East Timor. 1993 alone saw over 2,000 Aussie peacekeepers spread throughout the world. As a testimony to the largely unsung nature of peacekeeping work, I was in the army in 1993 and even then I had barely any idea just where our troops were. To give an idea of the different kinds of roles played during the 90s, I'll go a bit deeper into some of the main operations being Cambodia, Somalia, Rwanda and East Timor. But before I do, it would be remiss of me not to make a mention of those wonderful men and women of the other two services, the Navy and Air Force, who also play their part. I know, I know, it pains me to do so, but in the interest of full coverage, I must give credit where credit is due. They they go alright though. The Navy took part in peacekeeping for the first time in 1990, before and after the First Gulf War. With Saddam safely bundled out of Kuwait, the RAN joined other navies in patrolling the Gulf and enforcing the UN sanctions against Iraq in what was known as Operation Damask. Damask lasted from September 1990 until November 2001 and involved 10 rotations of ships. The RAAF has taken part in many of the peacekeeping roles over the years, predominantly in transport roles, both of troops and supplies. But the true value of these boys and girls in blue comes to the fore in disaster relief operations, particularly in the Pacific region. Within days of disaster, you're likely to see news reports of RAAF planes and aircrew on the ground delivering food, water and medical supplies, as well as providing medical and recovery specialists in some remote and cut-off locations. The role of the RAAF often goes unsung, but in this day and age, bugger all would or could be done without them. So, as I go through the following operations, keep in mind that behind the scenes, it was the RAAF which enabled the troops to get in and do their thing. So that brings us back on track and ready to look at Cambodia. United Nations Security Council Resolution 745 was adopted on 20th of February 1992 and the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, UNTAC, was established. UNTAC was different to previous UN-led missions. Rather than operating in an observational role, this was the first time the UN had actually taken over the administration of an entire country. Led by a Japanese diplomat, Yasushi Akashi, 46 countries, including Australia, hit the ground to work towards democratic elections after decades of civil war which had resulted in the deaths of millions. To achieve these ends, UNTAC laid out its strategy. First, exercise authority over all aspects of government, supervise the withdrawal of foreign military forces, 
disarm and demobilise Cambodia's fighting factions, confiscate caches of weapon and military supplies, promote and protect human rights, oversee military security and maintain law and order. They also set out to repatriate and resettle refugees and assist in mine clearance. And if all that wasn't enough, they began the process of bringing senior members of the Khmer Rouge to trial for war crimes and genocide. This part of their plan was less than successful. UNTAC was accused by the State of Cambodia, SOC's military leaders, of bias towards the Khmer Rouge when they failed to disarm. But they had been quite effective in disarming most of the SOC's militia units. So you can see why the SOC may have felt a bit hard done by. The Khmer Rouge made full use of this situation and made quite a few territorial gains and exerted their influence further through the use of violence. The first trials of Khmer Rouge leaders did not commence until 2007 by which time most of the offenders were dead or in ill health. Despite all that, the main focus was on delivering free democratic elections, and in May 1993, about 90% of eligible voters arrived at the voting booths. Neither the Khmer Rouge nor the Party of Democratic Kampuchea were particularly keen on free elections and managed to bar many people from attending. Prince Ranindra's party, F-U-N-C-I-N-P-E-C, won the majority of votes. Please don't ask me what that stands for because it's in French and I'd rather save myself the embarrassment of trying to pronounce it. The Cambodian People's Party, under Hun Sen, came a close second with the Buddhist Liberal Democratic Party also putting in a good showing. The FUNCINPEC entered into a coalition with the other parties and drafted a new constitution which recognised Prince Chinook as the king and Prince Ranarinda and Hun Sen as the first and second prime ministers. From this perspective, UNTAC seems to have achieved its goal. Somalia. Most people know something of the situation in Somalia in 1992, or at least most moviegoers would know something of it. The incident which inspired the movie Black Hawk Down occurred during the UN involvement in Somalia. Civil war had erupted in Somalia with a number of powerful warlords vying for power. As normally happens in these situations, although the warlords and their supporters were living quite the life, the ordinary people of the country were starving. With a population of 10 million people, it was estimated that over half were in severe danger of starvation and starvation-related diseases. 300,000 people died of starvation in the early months of 1992. UN forces were deployed under Resolution 751 in order to uphold the ceasefire and assist in the humanitarian relief. This was amended to Resolution 794 when it became clear that 751 was far from effective. Resolution 794 provided further powers to intervene rather than simply monitor the situation. The Australian involvement was named Operation Solace and members of the 1st Battalion Royal Australian Regiment replaced the 3rd Battalion of the 9th US Marines at Baidoa on 19th January 1993. In support of 1RAR was a squadron of armoured personnel carriers from the 2nd 14th Light Horse Regiment, engineers, communications and electronic warfare specialists and, and administrative staff. HMAS Tobruk provided support by bringing in supplies to Mogadishu and the RAAF did their bit with supply and transport as well. Quick side note, at the time I was on a driver's course at Pakapanyal and on that course was a digger from 1RAR who had injured his ankle a couple of months before was unable to deploy with his platoon. They sent him to the driver's course instead. Needless to say, he wasn't happy but he did make the cause bearable. Anyway, Butthole, if you're listening, take comfort in the knowledge that your suffering has not been forgotten, nor has the lesson you taught me at the Seymour pub. Never drink one for one with a grunt. Jeez, that got messy. Anyway, I digress. Much of the operational detail for that deployment is still under non-disclosure processes, so I can't tell you much of the day-to-day events. 
However, praise from non-government organisations operating in the region showed that the battalion was successful in their operations, seizing a large number of firearms, RPGs and other weapons, as well as disrupting the activities of the local warlords. On 2nd of April 1993, Lance Corporal Shane McKinley was accidentally shot while on a patrol and died from his wounds. He was the only Australian fatality of the operation. One RAR left Somalia on the 21st of May 1993. Rwanda The situation which led to the Rwandan genocide in 1993 is complicated, but an oversimplified explanation goes something like this. After World War I, the previously German colony of Rwanda was given to Belgium. Primarily, the Rwandan population was split between two groups of people, the Tutsis and Hutus. While under control of Belgium, the Tutsi ruling class were kept in a privileged position, but in 1962, when Rwanda gained its independence, the government was predominantly Hutu. The Hutus began to attack the Tutsi who fled to Uganda for the next 30 years. In 1990, the Rwandese Patriotic Front, the RPF, invaded Rwanda from Uganda. The RPF was mostly made up of exiled Tutsis and a fierce three-year civil war erupted. By late 1993, it looked as though both sides were ready to talk peace, and so the UN went in to help with negotiations. Unfortunately, by early 1994, peace talks broke down, and on the 6th of April, Rwanda's president was killed when his plane was shot down. This triggered the Hutu to seize control of the Rwandan government, and the genocide commenced. From April to July, up to 800,000 people had been killed, with almost 2 million fleeing from their homes. It was into this environment that Australia's first contingent of 308 members landed in August 1994. Australia's involvement consisted mostly of medical personnel with security and support attachments. Upon arriving in Kigali, they set up in the Kigali Central Hospital, establishing an operating theatre in the only room with a complete roof. They had the only working x-ray machine in Rwanda, the only blood bank, the only intensive care unit and the only air-conditioned operating theatre. Primarily their task was to provide medical care for other UN forces dealing with the situation, but mostly they operated on Rwandan victims. As well as working in the hospital, small groups travelled to nearby villages with infantry protection to treat locals. The second contingent replaced the first in February of 1995. I'd just been posted to Townsville about a month before the first contingent returned. I met a mate at the airport and brought him back home for a home-cooked feed and bed before he had to make the final flight back to Brisbane the next day. He described what it was like to drive down the roads and see an endless line of dead bodies on either side. All the time, he and a mate were returning from a task and were confronted by heavily armed Hutus. Just another day in Rwanda. The first contingent had a rough time, but the second contingent was to confront possibly one of the worst incidents in our peacekeeping history. On 19th of April 1995, a group of 32 Australian soldiers and medical personnel were sent to the Gabeho refugee camp to assist refugees and UN medical activities. There was little food or water, and the refugees in the camp were mostly Hutu people, some of who had taken part in the earlier genocide. By far, the majority were women, children and the elderly. RPF began harassing the camp, and between the 20th to the 23rd of April, they began to close it down. The RPF attempt to close the camp degenerated into an uncontrolled massacre, with the RPF killing around 4,000 people and injuring 600. The Australian medical team, led by Captain Carol Vaughan Evans, were hard-pressed to cope with the scale of the injured, but patched up the victims as best they could and evacuated many to the Kigali Hospital. Australian support troops and a company of Zambian peacekeepers were also in Kapeho when the massacre began. Under UN mandate, the troops did not have authority to intervene, but in any case, they were seriously outnumbered by the RPF, and any attempt to stop the killing would likely have risked the lives of the UN troops. 
Also, with the chaos within the camp, it would have been near impossible to fire at the RPF without killing innocent refugees. As a presenter of military history, it can be a fine line sometimes between giving too much information and not enough. Too much of the nasty stuff is gratuitous and unnecessary, but in my opinion, if you don't include the horrific stuff, then you don't do any justice to the people who were involved. If I was to say the troops at Kibeho witnessed a killing spree and left it at that, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, that sounds a bit rough, but you wouldn't get the full impact of the event. So with that in mind, I was looking through an article by Paul Jordan, who was an Australian soldier present at the massacre. He wrote an article which is on the Anzac Day Commemoration Committee website. Go and check it out if you like. It gives a detailed account of what they witnessed, but I've chosen the following passage as it gives a good idea of the events without being excessively graphic. Quote, Our medical work continued unabated in the Zambian compound as the casualties flowed relentlessly. At about 10am, some of the displaced persons attempted to break out and we saw them running through the re-entrance. We watched and could do little more, as these people were hunted down and shot. The RPA soldiers were no marksmen. At times, they were within 10 metres of their quarry and still missed them. If they managed to wound some hapless escapee, they would save their valuable bullets, instead bayonetting their victim to death. This went on for two hours, until all the displaced persons who had run were dead or dying. End quote. The Australian commander, Lieutenant Steve Tilbrook, ordered the men not to fire, and as a testament to their discipline that no one did. But you can only imagine what it must have felt like to watch a massacre unfolding before you and being powerless to stop it. You're holding a rifle, it's loaded, you're trained, and yet you can do nothing. That has got to have a serious psychological impact on anyone. A debriefing team was later sent to Rwanda to counsel the Australians who were present at the massacre, but there's only so much counselling can do. It was argued that UN presence at Gabeho stopped the RPF from killing everyone in the camp and creating an even worse outcome, but you would have to think that would be little comfort. After the Gabeho massacre, the Australians concentrated on training the Rwandans, to whom they handed over some of the hospital duties. In August, the Australians were replaced by a team of 30 civilians from Norway. Responsibility for the hospital was handed over to the Norwegians and Rwandans, and the Australians returned home. East Timor Probably the best-known peacekeeping operation for Australians today is East Timor, because unlike many of our previous operations, this one happened right on our doorstep and received extensive prime-time news coverage. Between 1702 and 1975, the country now known as East Timor was then known as Portuguese Timor. In 1975, Indonesia invaded East Timor and claimed it as an Indonesian territory, beginning nearly a quarter of a century of bloodshed. In 1999, Indonesian President Habibie agreed to allow the East Timorese to vote on whether they wished to remain part of Indonesia or set out on their own as an independent nation. A UN operation, the United Nations Mission in East Timor, was established to organise and conduct the vote, which was held at the end of August 1999. The people of East Timor, unsurprisingly, voted against remaining under a regime which had been killing them and plundering their resources for 24 years. Just as unsurprising, the pro-Indonesian militia within East Timor didn't think much of the majority result and with the occasional support of Indonesian military, unleashed a frenzy of killing, looting and arson across the country. Nearly 500,000 people were displaced from their homes, fleeing in fear of their lives. One of the enduring images I have of this time was footage of parents surrounding the UN compound in Dili in a desperate attempt to save the lives of their children before the nearby militia descended on them. They literally threw their children over the razor wire top wall, hoping that A, they'd clear the wire, and B, there was someone on the other side to catch them. Fortunately, it appears that in most cases they succeeded, 
But seriously, how desperate would you have to be to take that risk? Indonesian forces appeared incapable or unwilling to control the violence and eventually, under much international pressure, they agreed to withdraw to West Timor and then allow an international force to take over. It's not very often I'll give John Howard credit, but as Australian Prime Minister at the time, he did just about everything right. He acted swiftly and forcefully and in a very short space of time, the Australian-led International Force East Timor, Interfet, was established and was on the ground by the 12th of December 1999. Interfet was under the command of the Australian Major General Peter Cosgrove and was a non-UN force but operated under a UN resolution. The best I can figure it, the UN were happy to let Interfet go in and do the hard yards so long as the UN couldn't be held responsible for any misstep. And in that one statement you can probably discern my opinion of what the UN has become in recent times. They certainly aren't the same organisations who acted so confidently in Korea in 1950. Anyway, back to Interfet. Major General Cosgrove was tasked with restoring peace and security in a country which had descended into chaos. In all, 22 countries contributed to the mission. Just to add an extra layer of complication to the whole task, there was a diplomatic angle to keep in mind. Indonesia had always been an important diplomatic partner of Australia. Special care had to be taken to not do anything which could lead to a breakdown in the traditionally fragile Australia-Indonesia relationship. With only limited forces initially available, Cosgrove adopted the all-spot concept of dominating key areas from which the surrounding areas could be influenced and then secured, moving quickly by helicopter to keep the militia off balance. On 6th October, an armoured column of Gurkhas took part in a coordinated operation with Response Force, a force made up of Special Forces troops from the Australian SASR, New Zealand SAS and British Special Boat Service. They captured 116 militia, however an SASR patrol was ambushed and two Australians were wounded. The patrol counterattacked and killed four militia. Another notable incident occurred on the 10th of October when a platoon of two RAR were patrolling towards the West Timor border. Indonesian police were positioned on the other side of the border and opened fire on the platoon. A brief firefight ensued with one Indonesian killed. The patrol commander managed to establish contact with the Indonesian commander and arranged an impromptu meeting. The end result? It appeared that the maps showed different locations of exactly where the border was. Why the Indonesians chose to open fire rather than just telling the Australians to stop, we may never know. These things happen, I suppose. By 19th of October, Indonesia finally accepted the referendum result and the situation across East Timor calmed down. Shortly thereafter, the non-UN Interfet handed over to the United Nations Transitional Administration in East Timor. The UN continued to support the transition to independence for the East Timorese and involved between 1,500 and 2,000 Australian military personnel. East Timor became its own nation in May 2002. It would be remiss of me to neglect to mention the other Australians who have contributed to peacekeeping activities. In Cyprus, Cambodia, Haiti, Mozambique, Bougainville and Timor, Australian police officers have served, sometimes alongside the troops, other times independently. Three such officers have lost their lives while on peacekeeping missions, but their contribution is more in line with their policing skills rather than military operations, so they do fall outside the scope of a military history podcast, but their role is duly acknowledged. In all, six multinational operations have been commanded by Australians. Lieutenant General Robert Nimmo was Chief Military Observer in Kashmir, with the UN Military Observer Group in India and Pakistan from 1950 to 1966. Lieutenant General John Sanderson was Force Commander with the UN Transitional Authority in Cambodia from 92 to 93. Major General David Ferguson was Force Commander with the Multinational Force and Observers in the Sinai from 94 to 97. 
Richard Butler led the UN Special Commission in Iraq from 97 to 99. Major General Timothy Ford was Chief of Staff with the UN Truce Supervision Organisation from 1988 to 2000. And as mentioned, Major General Peter Cosgrove commanded the Interfet Force from 1999 to 2000. Sadly and inevitably, any such record of service in dangerous areas over such a long period is going to result in the loss of life for some of those involved. In addition to the aforementioned police officers, 13 Australian soldiers have died while on peacekeeping missions since 1966. They are Lieutenant General Robert Nimmo, Sergeant Llewellyn Thomas, Sergeant Ian Ward, Captain Peter McCarthy, Lance Corporal Shannon McKinley, Major Susan Felsch, Lance Corporal Russell Eisenhouth, Lance Corporal Sean Lewis, Corporal Stuart Jones, Private Jamie Clark, Private Ashley Barker, Craftsman Bo Pridue and Sergeant Brett Kinlock. Their operations may not have captured the public imagination as much as Gallipoli or Tobruk, but their contribution to Australia's military history should never go unrecognised. Which is why it is quite astounding that the names of soldiers who have died on peacekeeping operations did not have their names included on the honour roll at the Australian War Memorial until 2013. Their names were only included after strong lobbying led by the daughter of Captain McCarthy, who was killed by a landmine in Lebanon in 1988. Quite unbelievable, really. At least they are there now, where they belong. Better belated recognition than none at all. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, please feel free to leave a comment on the website at australiamilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. And don't forget to leave a review and a comment on iTunes. It really does help. And also remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.